the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week. Episode 68, recorded Friday, December 7th, 2012. Mostly harmless. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. It's time for AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audio-visual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, With us this week is George Tucker, the engineering coordinator for World Stage. How are you, sir? Good afternoon, everybody. I'm great. Thanks. Uh, Also with us is Joel Bilheimer, the vice president systems integration for Pershing Technologies, LLC. How are you, sir? Uh, that, I'm excellent. Good to be here, Tim. Thanks. Uh, also with us for the first time is Mr. Brock McGinnis, the sales manager for Westbury National in Toronto, Canada. How are you, sir? I am wonderful on this Friday afternoon. Nice to be here, Tim. Yes, welcome. This is the first time for, for Brock. It's also the first time for Dr. Yoram Solomon, the vice president and general manager for Pinview. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And as you said beforehand, your daughter says you're a doctor, but not the useful kind. So, and she's right. <laughs> from now on, I'll just I'll call you Yoram. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, including uh, the fact that I was this close to getting rid of Netflix, and suddenly they have Disney. So I can't. <laughs> um, video chatting on the Wii U, smartphone over uh, using your smartphone as a remote. And somebody somewhere said 20% of manufacturers' reps should be shot. So we'll talk about who that was. But first, uh, let's talk about Mitsubishi and the fact that the DLPs have gone away or are in the process of going away. Um, George, is this is this just a normal cyclical, cyclical thing, easy for me to say, where you know this is a technology that should have already gone away and this is just Mitsubishi kind of signing the death warrant already? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I th- it kept around for a while because you had the people who said, ooh, 70 inches for 30% less than you could get anywhere else. Um, but I mean, come on, these things are behemoths. Their footprint is ginormous, and about the only thing they're good for is blocking the door in a situation comedy. <laughs> Jeez, nice. Uh, jo- Joel, is this one of those things where you know there's nothing really with the exception of the situation comedy? Um, that these things are good for. Is this technology just so passe and so gone that it's it's time to go bye bye? I, I think so. You know, I mean, uh, full full credit to, to Mitsu for for keeping it going as long as they did. <laughs> I mean, everyone else left the industry what five years ago. Um, but the form factor, obviously, uh, you know, the, the colorimetry aside, um, you know, we all know DLP was great for that. But, um, you know, the lamp issues, particularly for the consumer market, which is really the only one that Mitsubishi uh, still really supported. Um, you know, the fact that if you were a home theater enthusiast, you had to replace your lamps at a cost of X hundred dollars every year or so. You know, it, it just it just isn't a sustainable business model. And, and flat screens and even, you know, still projection systems, especially with 4K coming out. Uh, are are so much more efficient for uh, for the home theater market, and the professional market has moved on completely to flat screens. It's 
like I said, full credit to them for trying it as long as they could. But uh, I, you know, I think that technology is officially gone at this point. Brock, I, I held on to my CRTs with, you know, I used to make the comment from my cold dead fingers, you're going to pry them out of my out of my hand. <laughs> Um, just because of the color depth and everything like that, is this, this is not the CRT though, is it? This is just another, you know, uh, bygone piece of, of, of visual technology or is it a CRT? No, no, I, this is not the CRT. Um, people's homes uh, have changed. I think people are living in smaller spaces. Flat panels are, you know, the picture is so good for the average consumer. I I was surprised to learn that Mitsubishi actually still made uh, rear projection DLPs other than in the in the commercial space. They do still have an application in command and control. Um, you know, we deal a lot with Christie's microtiles, which of course are a uh, rear projection DLP uh, device. But um, in the home market, I can't imagine still owning one, although I suspect there is one in my ex-wife's basement that, uh, oh, uh, that wow. I, may, I may have left behind uh, a decade ago. In, in, in your hurry, you... you geez, all right. Uh, you're, you're... I carried it down the stairs. I wasn't carrying it back You up. know what? I don't blame you <laughs> at that point. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, but in those situations, you at least carry the top part up. And where's that? I don't know. I never saw it. Oh, um, I think I have it now. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh goodness, Joram, do you have any? All the all everybody, all the three guys said, yeah, this is time for this thing to go bye bye. Is it? Yeah, um, it it was it was some time ago. You know, let, let's remember that when DLP came out, there are three major applications: projectors, uh, cinema, and TV. And uh, I was at Texas Instruments at the time, and uh, the, you just couldn't build flat screens, LCD, or even plasma big enough, and DLP was the only technology that could do that. But it was pretty obvious at some point that it can't anymore. So I'm, I'm surprised it took that long. Uh, the technology itself is great. DLP is great, but for other applications, just not the consumer. Just not the consumer, not, and not, you know, rear screen where it's, you know, 200, right. 200 300 pounds. So. All right, uh, Cedia has come and partnered with THX to offer a couple different collaboration uh, training. They're doing it in, in ISC, and ostensibly one would, would not assume, but it's a very good likelihood that they'll do it at the Cedia show uh, in, uh, in, 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 oh, it's in Denver next year, in, in Denver this next year. Um, Yoram, is this a, a good thing where, you know, obviously, you know, education is always a good thing. Further training is always a good thing. Um, but the fact that that Cedia has kind of teamed up with um, THX to offer their specific brand of training is that is that cool? We we good, we good with that? Uh, I think that uh, I, I'm, in general, I'm a, an open market uh, person. I, I like to see competition. I don't like to see them uh, align with just one way of doing things. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, I, uh, Brock, is that your, your take two as well? Where you know they, they, it would be better if they just kind of said, you know what, let's let's look at one way, not not just one way of doing things, and tying ourselves to THX. I think opening up uh, training to as broad a possible uh, market is fantastic for any brand. I think it's a smart move by THX. Mm, that's good. That's a good point. Uh, George, you do a lot of training at, at World Stage. Is this um, do you guys do brand specific training like THX, or is it just kind of in general? 
We've been known to do things like that. Again, we're a staging company, so uh, THX doesn't really. I was in the custom install side. THX, THX was there, but here's my question: I don't even know how is THX actually that common beyond, say, the movie theaters. Well, well that's, still that's, actually, that's actually an interesting point, George, uh, because I think I think to me it's kind of interesting to contrast this with Mitsubishi pulling out of. DLP in home residential because that's where THX's growth area is. It's is mm-hmm. in residential. You know, uh, Panasonic's VT50 is a THX certified box now. Uh, Sound Blaster has a wireless THX headset. Um, remember, it's it's all it's all uh, this sort of Lucas certification uh, process that, that he created. Apparently, Ep makes a THX projector now. Oh. So I, I think, and that's why my guess is they've teamed up with Cedia. You know, I, I agree with Brock. I think it's it's a really good move for uh, for THX, but I think it's a good move for Cedia too. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a natural synergy between those two lines. And you know, I, I think it may also have something to do with the fact that you know when when Disney bought Lucasfilm, they also bought the rights to THX. So you know, Disney is definitely, as as we'll see later on in, in some of the other topics we're going to talk about, Disney's definitely moving into the home market uh, in in a very big way, even from a technological perspective, much more than the content perspective, which obviously Disney's king on content. So um, so I, I think I think this is probably the first of many of these types of relationships would be my guess. Well, here's here's my question about it though: is that the, some of the stuff you mentioned was integrated products that had THX processing, the headphones, the projector. Right. They're not putting out a THX signal out of it for the processor and to fill the room, right? So we're talking about these integrated products. That's that's absolutely right. And and what I think it what I think the the, the gap right now in the market, uh, and and let me preface this by saying that I do not support residential market, but from the people I know in the industry who do, you know, they have all these products that are THX certified, and all these customers are buying them, and then they're complaining because it. They, they're paying the extra money for the THX certification, but they're not getting anything out of it. And that's because they don't understand how to integrate it. Oh. Um, so I think that's really where the CDA market is coming from with the training is to try and educate not necessarily consumers, although possibly consumers, but really to focus more on those residential integrators to get them to be THX certified so that they can go out to these high-end customers. That makes a lot more sense than just CDA teaming up with THX. I didn't realize that they were they were hitting the residential market that hard. Well, that's that's just what I see. Again, I, you know, my, my company doesn't support that market, yeah. but I, I've got a lot of friends who do. So, makes sense. Uh, all right, across the pond, uh, interactive display panels and interactive panel sales in general uh, were up twenty two percent year to year. And so, my my original question was, okay, I didn't realize the English liked interactive boards that much. But this is a kind of a bigger question overall. And Brock, we'll start with you on this. Um, the a lot of these require specific styluses, let's say, or, or, or pens. You know, uh, the the picture with the the the, uh, the article has a, a guy with a I think it's an orange pen there. Um, is this just um, that market moving into you know not discovering, but you know? Discovery, I guess, is the best way to put it. Uh, this interactive boards, and, and, and we in the U.S. have you know, we've we've done that, we've been there, and and now we're, we've moved on to something else. Or is this, or so, is there something else going on with that? 
Tim, I think I think you missed the point uh, of the article. Uh, okay, it's not it's not about interactive boards. It's about interactive panels, mm. and the uh, the point that the article was making about a twenty two percent increase probably reflects uh, you know a change in in our own company's sales here. Um, companies like Sharp and NEC and Panasonic now have uh, very cost effective, uh, tightly integrated. Uh, touch panel capabilities in their flat panel, commercial flat panel displays. And since every meeting room now has a flat panel display in it um, with a flip chart beside it or a whiteboard uh, or a separate uh, smart brand board, companies are starting to wise up and go, why can't that piece of real estate on my meeting room wall do two things at the same time? And uh, so we have been selling them like hotcakes. Mm -hmm. So is it a real estate issue or is it a technology issue or is it both? Um, the technology has become easier. It's become a lot cheaper. Uh, I think that the, you know, the upcharge uh, from Sharp, for example, is only six or $700 between a 60-inch commercial display and a 60-inch commercial display with, uh, with full touch capabilities. Um, the integration uh, with Windows 7 and Windows 8 uh, is pretty tight. Now, um, people have lots of flexibility, and even if all you want is a an electronic whiteboard or uh, you know flip chart capability, um, that now is you know occupying that same place on the wall um, as uh, the TV that is used for presentations or video conferencing. Um, it's just it's space efficient. It looks better. Uh, the technology is more affordable. People aren't having to go out and buy separate. Uh, quote-unquote smart boards uh, in order to take advantage of touch technology. It's now part of the TV that's on the wall. Yoram, this is, this is something that you guys have experience with because this is what you do. Benview, that's what it is. Um, it, is that something where you guys are seeing already where it's, it's kind of already baked into the displays? And, and if so, how, do you, how are you guys you know, helping that or, or, or moving towards that? Well, first of all, it, it reminds me of modems. So you remember the modems uh, that uh, used to be an aftermarket device, so internet connectivity was an aftermarket thing that you would add to the computer after the fact that you can't get a computer today without internet connectivity. And that's the same thing. I think, you know, the audience, whoever, whether it's courtroom, uh, they need interactivity to stay engaged. It, you know, they have very short attention span. If you don't engage them with in interacting with the content, you lose them. So I, I think you're going to get more and more and more things are going to be interactive. More projectors are going to be interactive by definition. More screens are going to be interactive. You're seeing the, the growth of 22% uh, on screen being interactive. Uh, what Where we feel the blank is where there's like 80 million projectors right there installed and, and 10 million displays probably installed that don't have that. What we're trying to do is say, hey, you, you want to add interactivity. You know that you have to add interactivity, but I, I'm not asking you to replace the, the display. Uh, was it Brock who said that it's about $600 difference? But the thing is, you can't take a display that you currently have and say, I'll add $600 and it will become interactive. It's either interactive right now or not. So mm -hmm. my guess is 20 years from now, maybe 10 years from now, that's not going to be a question. Every display is going to be interactive. But there is, there is a period between now and then where you're going to need things like PenView to bridge that gap. Then that makes sense. Go ahead. Well, the other thing that's, uh, that's happened, Yoram and Tim, is that a display used to be a passive device that we watched. 
and then we all got iPads. And now we all uh, interact with our smartphone or our, our, um, uh, our pad on a regular basis. And culture is changing in the world. And, and I think it is now going to be somebody's going to jump up in a meeting and uh, they're just going to touch the display and expect something to happen, just like it does on their tablet. You, you have no idea how many times I'm sitting by my Mac and, uh, you know, all of a sudden I'm touching the screen to do something and nothing happens. And I go, <laughs> why didn't they make their screen interactive too, touch screen? I have a four-year-old with an iPad and he is forever coming up to my laptop screen and saying, Daddy, it's broken. It, <laughs> yep. Nice. You know, the something only else one we... I have, the only one of my daughters that does not have an iPad is the one that thought I'm a doctor but not the useful kind. <laughs> then that would be why she doesn't have the iPad. <laughs> Go ahead, George. Well, no, I, one of the things we do some uh, installation when we do install it, it's in education, and there's been a huge push to basically force even some of the older teachers who said, "No, no, no, keep my my VCR tapes. I want them. I want them. I want them." To get them from behind the desk, they're forcing them onto these interactive Eno boards, whiteboards, whatever. And there's a huge uptick in that, that there's a change in culture being forced by educators who are now sort of IT creative people in the school saying, no, 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 get up there, do this, interact on the board with them, don't sit behind that podium. And a lot of that push, I think, is, is happening across the globe, but that's a big push into why they're seeing more sales on these things. Joel, is this, your, your, your bread and butter is, is the government market. Is there... It, it, I don't want to say is there a reason that they're not, but are they moving into it? And if if not, is it is it a security issue or is there a security issue with these with these things? Um, that's probably a complicated question. I, I mean, you look at a company like Perceptive Pixel, you know, which Jeff Hahn founded, you know, whatever it was five years ago. They only support the government market and CNN. <laughs> um, and CNN. So yeah, John King. Um, but. So, so there is absolutely a market for that type of product in uh, in command and control environments, um, in in mission centers, that type of thing. Uh, the problem is that you know Perceptive Pixel makes, and I'm not a shill for them, but you know they are the, the leaders in this particular market. You know they they make custom form factors that that are quite large. Um, no one is really. Uh, stepped up to the plate on, on two fronts in terms of creating useful form factors that can, you know, use satellite imagery, um, that can operate in a, in a mission oriented environment. Um, but also that integrate on the back end with the enterprise data. You know, we, we all hear, for example, about, you know, big data, you know, in, integration, you know, the cloud. I mean, we, we throw all those buzzwords around, but, you know, from a from an enterprise perspective, these devices are really entry points into the the realm where the meat happens, and the meat is the data and manipulating it. So if you you know let's say you have a flat screen that has an onboard PC, well that's really great, but if that doesn't and and that's how you do all of your your touch interface, um, I mean that's really great, but if that doesn't you know talk to the central database, the central you know data center. Uh, it's not really very useful for me. I can't archive it. I can't access, you know, other data sets. So, so that's kind of the area where I think, um, you know, the, the industry needs to get to, the, uh, the products need to get to, uh, to really kind of penetrate into the enterprise market. You know, I, I thought George made a really good point in terms of education. You know, I, I mean, as, as the article suggested, 
you know, the, the, the vast growth of this, um, is, is in the education market, especially the global education market. Um, you know, the American market may be starting to get a little saturated or in the North American market, sorry, Brock, <laughs> maybe getting a little saturated, but, no um, you know, particularly in developing areas, you know, I think we all see the benefit of being able to educate a child uh, visually and tactily as well as just, you know, standing behind a lectern. So. I would just like to point out that I love Canadians and I think they're great. But for some reason, every time, anytime any of them come on this show, something happens. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I don't know. Yeah. Our, our buddy Matt Scott, last time he was on, he kept dropping off and... We just blamed the one Canadian ISP provider. So uh, <laughs> um, th this comes to us from our buddies over at CE Pro. And it, it, Jason Knott um, wrote, the, wrote the piece. And just to be clear here, Jason Knott did not say that 20% of independent reps should be shot. Someone else did at a uh, at ASEAN uh, Unlimited Dealer Conference. Um, Yoram, you're the, you're the loan manufacturer rep here. So... You're not you're not a rep, but you're from a manufacturer. Uh, so we're going to start with you on this. Is this article somewhat accurate? Where you know what these guys either are old school and they won't get trained, and they and and there's they're not making way for um, the young pups to come in, or is it just that they've been out of the business so long, or they've been out of the the you know the 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 grime, the, the, the everyday grind, uh, like, like Broxen and, and, and Joel and George, where they just don't get it anymore. So shouldn't they not, maybe not be shot, but 20 should, 20% maybe should retire or go back to, go back to being an integrator. Well, I, I think that it, it really depends and maybe 20% is the right number. And, uh, we, we see that, uh, all the time. Uh, yes, we are manufacturing Penview, uh, in our own facility here, uh, in the U S I actually insisted we do that in the U S um, we uh, we ship that, and some some does go through reps and, and distributors. But um, so, some of them, you know, it just like and I know I'm, I'm jumping, but it's like electronic medical records. Some of the doctors would adopt it, some would won't. And if you have a doctor that doesn't want to in, integrate EMR, switch to another doctor. Same thing here, and that is if if the reps that when we work with a rep that just don't get it, and and they treat this as technology that's uh, same model, same everything that was 20 years ago, then then that's not uh, someone we want to work with and, and we screen them uh, as such. So uh, uh, we're not shooting them. I, I do think that here in Texas, actually, we're allowed to, but, uh, <laughs> but we don't. Wow. Uh, we just don't work with them. And on that note... <laughs> Wow, um, Brock, you are you, the, the three of you guys left are are, are integrators. You're, you're on some level. Um, so you, I'm certain that you have to deal at least with one independent rep for a couple of your of your uh, manufacturers. Uh, what's been your experience? Has it been positive, negative, or is it just like anything else in life? There are good and there are bad. I love reps, um, and I uh, I firmly believe that people do business with people. Um, and as, uh, as somebody whose, you know, career and business is based around selling things, um, I always make time to listen to a rep that said, um, there are reps that get it and there are reps that don't, uh, we love, we love close relationships. Uh, we love getting new information. Um, 
but we really only do have time or give time to those reps that have taken the time to learn their product and our business and uh, and understand that if they don't have anything of value to bring us, don't waste our time. Um, and I'd love to be able to shoot them, but of course in Canada here, we can't even own guns. Oh, so, so we just beat them. You can always bring them over to Texas. We'll take yeah. care of it. That's, that's a long drive, Yoram. Uh, uh, or they could just take them to George, who's you know just outside of New York, and, and set them loose. Uh, George, <laughs> George, that I say that as the big dumb Midwesterner that is is scared of the big bad city. Um, George, is this is this accurate? You know, twenty percent of these guys either don't get it, you know, and and you, you just kind of you know let them be on their way. I tend to take the Douglas Adam approach here and say they're mostly harmless. Um, I like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are some that are really good, but the problem is, of course, it's a shell game. A lot of manufacturers eventually invest in their own reps, and it's really just a temporary position, especially for certain product lines. I mean, I'm sure there's some smaller companies out there that will never really invest in a full set of manufacturers' reps, but it is true. They get, they're the last to get the information at times, unless their markets are really important. They're not always the ones who have the direct connection to the support. So I'm almost never going through them because, uh, as I said before, it's too, my time is too valuable. I'm not going to wait for them to get the information third hand. That, that's, and that's valid. Joel, is it? Mm. Is it no, it really is because if, if, you're, if you're getting information before they are sometimes, then, then it's kind of silly. Um, Joel, is it one of these things where we should – I'm not going to say we shouldn't give them the time of day, but where we put more – value in a direct manufacturer's rep as opposed to an independent one? Well, uh, I probably have a somewhat unusual perspective on this because my company doesn't actually sell any hardware. Um, you know, we, we only do third-party integration or, or customization. Um, so, you know, for, for us, we're not really in the business of talking to representatives of manufacturers, we actually need to talk to manufacturers directly, especially once you start getting into the security questions and those types of things that most of our customers need. Now, can a rep facilitate that conversation? Yes. And, you know, we certainly have some friendships out there that, that uh, take advantage of that. But I can honestly say there's not a technical question that we've ever had that a rep could even answer. Um, wow. So that's not, again, because of the particular needs of our particular, you know, our customer base. That's that's not saying anything good or bad about rep representatives. It's just that they don't necessarily know the market that we support. If there were representatives who exclusively supported the secure government market, uh, that then maybe maybe they could have those conversations, but. So far, we we haven't really experienced that. So it's not like you're you're talking about you know I don't know fiber or audio, and your rep isn't not knowledgeable in audio. He's just not necessarily or she's not necessarily knowledgeable in secure government stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah, okay. If I start talking about you know FIPS one forty two compliance, you know that's not a conversation that many manufacturers reps or product. I could have that about. conversation with you right now. Let's go. <laughs> Any day of the week, buddy. <laughs> what the heck you just said, dude? <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. You're, you're listening to the government show. Um, what? By the way, what was that, that you just said? You can't tell me, can you? 
I'm I'm sorry. What are you going for here? I was I was asking what 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 exactly you just said. The PIPS whatever. Oh, the PIPS 140-2, yes. the Federal Information Processing uh, Service. Yeah. Uh, 140-2 is a is an encoding algorithm sanctioned by NIST, which is part part of the Department of Commerce. Okay. I just learned something today that I uh, yeah that was. I, I would expect that that Mr. Solomon or Dr. Solomon might be familiar with it. It, it oh, and that was brought to you by the U.S. government. Yes. <laughs> All right. I just, just want to know hurt. whether. Oh, I forgot you live in Texas. That's right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the United States anymore. So. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Brock. Oh, I just wanted to know whether that that FIPS thing was at the top of the fiscal cliff or whether it was at the bottom. It's at the bottom. <laughs> it's what we're going to land on in about two weeks. Yeah. No, it's it's about ten percent from the bottom uh, where you go. So far, so good. <laughs> wow. All right. You're listening to AV Week uh, with Dr. Yoram Solomon, Brock McGinnis, Joel Billheimer, and George Tucker. Uh, George sent us this one from Slashdot.org, and I think all of you said, oh, I have an interesting or at least an opinion about this. Um, the question is this, and, and, and a number of us have worked in some way, shape, or form with let's say creation, uh, you know, whether that's working for the manufacturer or working for, uh, you know, intellectual property, designing systems and stuff like that. The question is this, uh, should inventions be automatically owned by your employer? Uh, and this is from an NYU journal of intellectual property and entertainment law. Uh, George, we'll kick it off with you. Whether you're working for, you know, world stage, who's, who you work for now or someone else, um, should what you create and, and the stuff that, that comes out of your brain, should that automatically be owned by your employer? I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV or the theater, but um, it, 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 I guess it's relative. Did I create it for and on the job? There might be some situation here, right? It might be, okay, you use company resources, you were intending to do something to help benefit the company, is that was that in the intent and whether you were, you know, especially when you're not assigned to do it directly, but you did it anyway. But the question, I think, comes a lot of times when people say, well, you've used the knowledge we've helped you get or we have proof that you took a computer home and used it to do that. To me, it's akin to Google saying we own the novel that you wrote on Google Docs. Well, no, you don't. I happen to use the tool, but it was never intended for you, and there's really a big debate there. I, I, I have to say maybe, but not not generally. <laughs> How's that for an abstract answer? That that was a it was a definite yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, Mr. Solomon, uh, should uh, Penview own everything that comes out of your head? Well, actually, that's the funniest thing because uh, if I look at my employment agreement, my own personal employment agreement, it says that anything that I develop that uh, was either done at company time, well, I can do that over the weekend, or on company equipment, where I can use my own equipment, or that is directly related to what the company is involved with. Well, here's the funny part, because my job is to come up with things that the company is not involved with. So almost by definition, it made everything I come up with, actually, the the company would not own. But I'm I'm assuming, and and I I like George's uh, approach, uh, and, and that's my approach, if you invented something that you're really hired to invent, 
and it, it really is related to what you do. They should own this, but I think I, I support a narrow definition of this because I, you do not want to be in a position where one of your employees comes up with something that is not really directly related. It's not an area where the company would go for and the company would just prevent anything from happening. No, it belongs to us, but by the way, we're not interested enough to pursue this, so we just kill it. Uh, I used to tell, I, I worked for Texas Instruments for seven years and they had all those issues and every time I would come up with something and they, they would patent it, shelve it, never do anything with it because it belongs to the company. And I, I tell people at TI now that I'm probably more valuable to TI after I left than when I was there because now the products that I come up with use Texas Instruments components and now I bring value to the company. So I, I, I support a narrow definition of... Uh, if it really, really is what, if it, this was what you were hired to do, then no, uh, it, it, uh, it's, it belongs to the company. But if it is going outside of that, uh, heck, you know, my PhD research was, was on innovation and creativity. And I, I like to have employees feel free to create, even if it doesn't belong to the company. And because that, that would help the company overall. To have them actually create and being creative. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, outside of the company. Outside of the company. Joel, you're involved in, in security and, and government stuff. If, if you stepped outside of, of that but still did sort of an AV stuff or maybe you did security for, you know, I don't know, Donald Trump. Let's, let's dream big here. Um, it, would that be owned by, by your company or, or should it be? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's um, it's an interesting point. Um, you know, cer certainly I think Dr. Solomon's experience is, is one we can all agree with. You know, for us, we don't – my particular company, we don't really have a, a central office in quite the same way that most organizations do. Um, you know, we've got labs. We, we do have an administrative front. But the large majority of our employees are, you know, work from home or work on site. Um, and if you work on site – for a government customer, you don't own it, and the company doesn't own it. The government does. Yeah, there's um, that. You know, well, and, and that's you know, most of the work that we do is specifically contracted to support particular government efforts. You know, uh, example, if you're um, if you work for DARPA on a DARPA program, you know, then then that's something where the government has said, you know, we think for whatever reason we have a need to determine how you know the green tree frog mates. And you're going to study that for six years and report back to us. And then you go back to your life. So um, from that perspective, you know, I, I, I think there's there's absolutely no question. I mean, that's that's contractual. That's what you're there to do. But, you know, like, like Dr. Solomon said, you know, we're in the business of hiring creative minds. Um, I know I know that sounds strange in the you know button down world of, of you know, government security. But. You know, think of it like a video game. You know, we are always trying to keep the bad guys out, and we have to come up with more and more creative ways to do that on a daily basis because they're coming up with more and more creative ways to attack us. So, you know, I need people who are very, very flexible, you know, and I'm not going to help myself and I'm not going to help my customer by forcing people who think in exactly the same way every single time. So I want to hire those creative types and I want to give them the flexibility to. You know, if they want to go out and, uh, you know, create a new, uh, I don't know, digital audio algorithm, fine, go ahead. You know, you do that as a side business because that, that's not going to impact my, you know, what we do. Can it I actually ask? will. By the way, it will impact what you do, but in a positive way. Yeah. Because that Fair person enough. working outside on another project, an external project, 
would have new ideas for the projects you did hire them for. I, I, I can see the point. I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, Brock, is this something where, you know, the, the, who, regardless of, of what it is, you know, encouraging your employees to, to be creative, like, like both Joel and, and Yorm have said, um, is a good thing. But in, in, the, in the long run, should what they create be owned by, uh, by their main employer? Well, we have already bought and paid for it. Um, if it has something remotely to do with what they do for us, if our programmers come up with modules or methodology or uh, you know processes that are entirely new and unique, while they are, are on our dime, even though it is a Canadian dime, um, Yes, that that's the property of the company. We've, uh, you know, we have been through this. Um, if it's something completely unrelated, uh, and certainly lots of people that work in our industry have uh, very diverse interests outside of the office, and uh, you know, they they create a, a new source of energy uh, on their own time. Well, that's theirs. But uh, if we have bought and paid for their time, that includes their intellect, that includes their ideas, that includes their activities. Um, and, but, uh, but I, and, and I, think, I think, I think the question, Brock, though, is at what point does the company's time end and the employee's time take over? Right? Because I mean, I, you know, we we all work on a you know a seven work seven day work week. You know, we we can be consulting with a customer at nine p.m. on a Friday and coming up with a solution at four a.m. on a Sunday. So. Right. Where do you where do you draw the line? I, I, I you know I, I think the concept of, of the forty hour work week just doesn't really apply so much in the in in our industry. But I do think uh, I, I do think what can be defined very easily is um, is uh, the scope of interest, Fair enough. Um, or the scope of activity. Uh, I don't care if somebody comes up with a new way to build a guitar. Uh, um, it, it doesn't even matter if they're you know doing it daydreaming at their deck. We're not in the guitar business. Uh, if they figure out a new way to uh, to make a guitar, great. Um, let them, uh, you know, let them take that off and and uh, do whatever with it. If they come up with a new way to deal with digital video signals um, that impacts us and and how we do things, uh, I don't actually care if they came up with that in the middle of the night. Um, that that. You know that is within our purview, and that is something that we are already paying them uh, every two weeks to do for us and be creative for us. Mm-hmm. Here's a question: um, it, Would some of this debate really be answered by saying 80-20 relationship of if you develop this, and once the company's costs are cleared, there's a shared thing? I mean, is that not a great uh, incentive for the engineer to say, "Oh yeah, I've got something in on this. I want to one make it work right, two make it make it." popular and therefore I've got really big incentive to keep this right. Well, I, I think I think that definitely drives to the central point, which is whatever the agreement is, and, and, and I agree with you, I think there should be some kind of incentive, but whatever the agreement is, it has to be set up beforehand. Um, yeah. I think especially, uh, you know, in our industry, it tends to be a mom and pop industry, a lot of small, you know, 25, 50 employee companies, uh, even even a large company might only have two or 300 people, which is not really that big. Um, so, you know, I think probably a lot of companies don't have a lot of experience with this, maybe more on the manufacturer side. So, Dr. Solomon, you know, you, your companies may have a little bit more experience with it. But particularly on the integrator side, I don't think they do to quite the same extent. And I think that's something where, uh, you know, may, maybe administratively or, you know, in an HR capacity, 
uh, you know, we, we need to clean our own house a little bit, if that makes sense. I would say, by the way, I, I battle with that question uh, quite often because I'm trying to build some uh, creativity-inspiring uh, places here in uh, in North Texas, and and one of the uh, one of the ideas that came up was, uh, you know, define it narrowly, define it upfront, it, as as you said, George, define it, or, or I'm sorry, Brock, you you said that, define it upfront, what the scope, this is what I hired you for. If it goes outside, outside of what I hired you, especially if it's in the gray area, how about uh, the company has first right of refusal to be the investor in your, whatever company you're going to start with? So the, you know you still give them the opportunity to build a business, a reasonable business. If I bring, if I take my one of my ideas that doesn't directly uh, relate to the narrow definition of my job, and, and I admit my own job is not very narrowly defined, but if I do come up with something outside of that definition, that the company does uh, does promote it, does help, and I will have, if I'm bringing an outside investor, my company actually has the first right of refusal for being that investor. Hmm. Then I think that right there is a good, that's a good model to go by, you know, as long as they, mm -hmm. as long as you give them the option, uh, you know, the first right of refusal, then then you move on from there. I think that would probably be a good one. Um, the Wii U came out a couple weeks ago, and the first AV-ish thing that has, has already popped up about it, um, it's video conferencing over the Wii U, and this is not the first time we have seen um, video conferencing kind of in the in the uh, in the the home front. Um, there are displays that have built-in Skype. There was also what was it the the Yumi the Umi um, from Cisco. Anybody remember the um, uh, the Yumi? Yeah. The Yumi, yeah. Joel, is this something that something that people want, or is it just something kitschy that we can do on the Wii U? Well, you know, I, I think I think it's indicative of a couple of things. You know, we, we all know that the that the Yumi, let's perhaps politely say, was an idea before its time. Um, That's a and, nice way to put that. Yes, and more specifically, uh, was at a price point that um, that was just not going to be sustainable. You know, six hundred dollars for a home video conferencing system that didn't really do much else uh, went was was not really viable. And and I think the market is. <laughs> slam the door shut on that but what's interesting to me is that not only is there video conferencing on the wii u but it's through a major major supplier it's through video and you know they, they of course are the uh, are the company that drives google video chat uh, or, or google hangouts mm -hmm. and um and they've uh, they've also teamed up with a, a couple other major major companies worldwide and so it's not like this is something that Nintendo built in-house. It's not like you've got these, you know, cute little, you know, Mii's that look like Lego figures and that's how you're doing your video chat. I mean, this this is a professional product. And what, you know, it may be toned down for, for the Wii um, for, you know, to, to meet the tax specs or whatever is necessary. But, you know, I, I think this is another step towards the game center being, you know, the, the entertainment hub of, uh, of the residents. And, you know, obviously we've got some other things, uh, to talk about in terms of, you know, Netflix and things like that, but, but those are all being driven primarily through, you know, Sony's PS threes through Xboxes. Mm -hmm. And so to me that now that there's a, that there's a partnership that's being driven for video conferencing through that device or through one of those devices. I think that's a that's a very good step for uh, you know for for our market moving forward. 
Do you think that yeah. this is the whole because the we've talked about um, the Connect and the fact that Connect is the, is the Xbox um, sure. camera and stuff like that, and the fact that that Microsoft owns Skype and there have some been some people that have have put one and one and, and one together and gotten three thing. Eventually, you're going to be able to do Skype on your Xbox. Do you think that yeah. their their um, you know competitor to that? I, I think I think that's absolutely right. You know, Microsoft obviously is the 700 million pound gorilla in in that fight. Um, you know, we all know that um, you know Windows 8 and Surface is is having not quite the uh, the rollout that I that I think Mr. Balmer quite was envisioning. But you know, their Xbox division is going gangbusters, mm-hmm. um, and you know they know that. It's it's very very possible. Uh, I'm, I'm sure some analysts would say likely that their traditional dominance in the enterprise and corporate market is is starting to uh, starting to be questioned by by cloud applications. You know whether it's Amazon or Google or whomever, and obviously they're trying to compete there. But I think they're making a very specific push into into the residential market. So, you know, um, I mean the. We're we're all anticipating that that's going to be integrated with uh, the Xbox 720 or you know 540 or whatever the heck oh, they're going to call it. Yeah. Um, and so you know now now the eyes are obviously going to turn back on on to Sony, see what they come up with. Um, but you know it's it's very possible. Probably going to get some other players in this. Um, you know, Google TV tried for a while. You know, Apple still has has their applications. Um, you know, it's it's very possible that there's some small company, maybe you know, one of Dr. Solomon's North Texas incubators, that uh, that's coming up with something right now that uh, we'll all have in our living rooms in in five years. So um, I'm 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 just very excited by it. I, I think it's a it's a great development, and uh, and you know, I'm I'm looking forward to the next one. Yoram, are you guys developing something right now that we should all invest in? I know, I know. The last thing you would expect me to say right now is yes. However, you are. Aren't you? I actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the founders of the North Texas Angel Network, and uh, we have, and I have personally made an investment in a little company here in North Texas called Biscotti, who's doing exactly ah, that. Yes. They're called Biscotti because it looks like a Biscotti, and you just add it to your TV and uh, you do conference. I'm still to, uh, you, you know, I, I do believe that uh, video conferencing, it just, it needs to have a smaller number of clicks. Right now, you have to take your mouse, you have to open Skype, you have to do this, you have to do that. And and it's it's all about simplifying things. Make it one click. Make it just, you know, something that works on your TV, uh, something that's easier to use it. So it's all about the experience. The only thing I'm, I'm trying to understand why a group of Israelis would go and start their company in New Jersey. <laughs> well, I, I don't think anyone's going to comment on that, Doctor Solomon. No, sir. <laughs> I got well. It's they, easy they, to bury the bodies. <laughs> thank you, George. Um, George, is this something that's you know uh, the fact that we can get video conferencing on the Wii, uh, the Wii U specifically now? Um, just one more step into integrating, you know, the 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 uh, video conferencing into the home. Yeah, I, I mean, yes. Um, although uh, it'll be fun to see how people who aren't used to video conferencing have to learn how to hide things in their home or other places where they're not used to having video conferencing of such good uh, depth of field and cameras. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's another. I think it's another step towards this integration of uh, technology into common day products. It happens all the time, and this is one more industry that's going to have to adapt or die. And and I think Dr. Solomon brings up a really good point about sort of a single click concept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what we're all looking for is one interface for everything. We want we want to be able to watch our TV live for sports. We want to be able to watch. DVR for all those cool shows that come on at one in the morning that we can't wake up and see. You know, we want to be able to chat with our cousins halfway across the globe, and we want one single thing that we can go and do. And obviously, I would prefer that it would be very secure, but you know, I recognize <laughs> that I'm a tiny little voice shouting in a canyon. But um, but but his point is, is is absolutely correct. We need a single interface for that, and obviously, you know, uh, these companies are, are you know whether from the hardware side they're trying to to establish that beachhead. Other companies are are trying to do it from from the middleware side. But um, that that's the only thing that that I'm sort of keeping an eye on and wary of is is will we ever establish a single interface that can talk to every other possible interface worldwide? Or, you know, are some people going to be on Sony net? Are some people going to be on MS net? Are some people going to be on Goog net or app net or whatever? Um, and, and never the twain shall meet that. And that's that's my big concern. Well, and, and, you know, all, all kidding aside, you know, security is, is, is important, but it's one of these things where, you know, you've got a lot of people who, number one, have probably never done it. And then you introduce whether that, you know, like, like you said, all the various, you know, instant messaging uh, that used to, that we used to happen. Uh, and now you, we've got, you know, we had SMS and that, and that kind of morphed into now it's, you know, texting and then you know, email and all this other jazz. There has to be one common carrier, I think, and, and whether that's uh, there's a company out there called Blue Jeans uh, that kind of wraps everybody together. Um, Vadio has a, a system as well that wraps everybody all, all together. It may be one of those, and it may be somebody completely different. Um, but somebody out there is going to is going to wrap everybody together, I think, and, and you know, make them all speak the same. Guys, we're going to wrap this up. We've got about 10 minutes here left uh, with a couple different stories, all of them surrounding uh, home entertainment and streaming. Um, I made a comment at the beginning of the show that I was about this close to uh, canceling Netflix, and I, and I really seriously was because um, I've got an Amazon account, and uh, I have Amazon Prime, and with that you get all these movies and stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, not anything against Netflix, but they had a limited, you know, number of, of, of shows and, and they were, you know, some of their deals were falling through and being canceled. And then lo and behold, I think they've gotten this week the most magical present that the head of Netflix could have ever gotten. Netflix finds the exclusive licensing deal with Disney. Put this in conjunction with a couple other stories. We have a story of pitting Netflix versus Hulu, Redbox, uh, Instant. Uh, the t- details for that came out. That that uh, story from from the Technology Tell guys. Um, George, we'll we'll kick this off with you. Is this you know is this war just now heating up? Uh, and if so, who else should we see in this? And and right now, let's be specific. We've got Netflix, you have Hulu, you have Redbox, and you've got Amazon. And tell me if I'm missing anybody. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But, yeah, there's a whole bunch of them out there. Um, 
Yeah, it's a fight because everybody's looking for the predominance to get the cord cutters or the supposed cord cutters. Who knows how well, real those people are? Not even are. cord cutters, though. I mean, I, I, I'm not a cord cutter. I think the, the majority of people aren't. They just, this is something that they augment with. I guess. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, it was the big hope, I suppose. But yes. them having Disney sort of interests me with Netflix. I'm already a Netflix user because my kids want all the, you know, they have very good kid-centric stuff on Netflix mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the other guys. I just wonder. I mean, I know that Netflix is in trouble, so I wonder if they'll be around long enough to fulfill the contract. <laughs> and and that's that's my real big question there. I mean, and it's a problem. How many? This is again. This is a format war, isn't it? It really is a form of format war where we're, we're all trying to decide which one will be the preeminent one. And if you choose wrong, you're going to be out a couple of hundred bucks, and have to scramble to get a new service once it's settled. And it really is. It's disturbing enough to me that I only joined Netflix because I got a Wii, and a Wii had it. I said, all right, we'll do that. Yeah, that that's valid. Uh, but I'm not going to go buy a new box, Redbox or anyone else, even if it's got a G-Wiz feature, because I just don't want to buy a new box that might not be useful in six months. And, and that's, that's also valid. Um, Brock, is this something, when it comes to dealing with clients, whether that's boardrooms or, or home theaters, where these wars are important only because you have to deal with the equipment that, that plays them? Uh, I think the only place we run across that is is the integration of Netflix and Apple TV, okay. um, because the you know the only external device we're really regularly consumer device we're being asked to integrate um, or use or talk to or control through uh, is Apple TV. I'm uh, I'm right up there with George. Um, I have Netflix because I have a child. Uh, I love the fact that Disney's going to be on it, um, and. Uh, because my child is a huge Disney consumer. <laughs> if Netflix is in trouble, it means Disney is smarter than they look because they will have, have just, uh, they will absorb Netflix <laughs> uh, if Netflix can't pay their bill. Oh, um, good Lord. And, and have direct access to all those millions of subscribers. Um, but uh, no, it doesn't impact my world at all. And uh, other than children's programming, I have never watched anything on any of these services. Brock just gave us our biggest rumor for the whole entire year. <laughs> Disney's going to buy Netflix. All right. Uh, Yoram, is this a huge deal? Who, whoever wins this, as George called it, a format war? I think the war is not over because the big player has not stepped in. And, Brock, I, I thought I almost thought you were going to uh, bring this up. But uh, to me, it's uh, it goes back. And, and we just had the discussion about uh, the discussion about Wii U. Uh, the, the big player here, and, and we all realize that, is, uh, is Apple. Mm -hmm. Apple controls the device. And when Apple decided uh, that Amazon cannot allow you to download content through the app, they just added a few clicks. Now, if you want to download Kindle content, you can't do that from the Kindle app. You have to do that from the Kindle website, and, and it, it adds complexity. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, when I had to download a couple of my latest books, I was going to Kindle, and it just, because I can't do that through the app and I have to go to the website, I just said, you know, on iBooks, I can just download it from the app, and I download it from iBooks. Uh, Apple TV right now gives access to Netflix. Uh, mark my word, and uh, we're probably going to talk about that in two years, uh, but uh, in two years uh, when Apple is going to say, well, no more access to Netflix or Hulu because we have our own content through the Apple TV, that's the end of that game. And I will buy it. My Netflix, <laughs> my Netflix account will end, 
and I will buy it. And it is all because of how easy it is just to have that single device hooked up, universal family access over the three or four iPads and other things that we've got in the house. And it's just, uh, uh, they are winning the hearts and minds battle where other, you know, other companies are trying to do it either through platform or content. Um, and, uh, and, and Apple has a huge lead. You're, you're, you're right on there, Yoram. Although it hasn't reduced my Amazon purchases at all, having to take that extra step. Yeah. Yeah. My, mine either, but my, mine are mostly, you know, school books, which, you know, are considerably, considerably cheaper on the Kindle than they are buying the physical book. Um, Joe, is this something where you deal with at all because of the security or is it just, you know, it's so commercial, it's not even, or so residential, it's not even funny. Well, I mean, you know, we, we wouldn't address, address it in our, in our customer market. I mean, I mean, personally I do, you know, I, I have a Hulu account, I have an Amazon prime account and I have a Netflix account. You, I mean, you, you have a Hulu account. I do. Like you pay them money. I do. I believe you're the first person I've ever met who actually has a, a Hulu pro or prime or whatever it's called. Plus Hulu plus account. It's not necessarily the best investment I've ever made. Okay. Um, you know, I, 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 I would kind of, if I had the, you know, forum to ask such, such a question, I would ask publicly why they put ads in subscription streams, but you know, that's a different, <laughs> uh, but I, I don't have such a forum, not like AV nation or anything. So I'm not going to do that. You can, you can ask but, whatever uh, you'd like, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I, I will say, you know, I, to, to me, I, I think I think this is kind of a confluence of two different, you know, two different impulses. You know, one is is as Brock says, you know, it's all about the portal. It's and it's all about the interface. And, and Apple, in terms of of a one touch system, Apple dominates that. I mean, no one comes close. The but content matters too. And you know, Netflix locking up Disney, obviously, for anyone with uh, a child below the age of probably thirteen. You know, Netflix is now probably a required service for you. Um, for those of us who were actually born in the 70s and remember Star Wars, Netflix may be a requirement for you too. Um, so particularly the fact that you're going to have exclusive license uh, to uh, to first releases. Um, you know, if, if you're talking about, you know, the Mermaid Part, Little Mermaid Part 7 coming out and you have to wait a year before you can see it on a streaming service – you know, that's, that's literally non-competitive from a content perspective. So, um, you know, I'm, this is, this is the old argument. We saw it with, you know, beta versus VHS. We saw it with, you know, uh, digital audio in the nineties, you know, CDs versus DVDs and, you know, HD DVD versus Blu-ray. I mean, you know, this, this, this argument keeps coming up over and over again. Is it the hardware or the content? Is it the hardware or the content? And, Usually, everyone will just sort of coalesce onto one combination. This hardware platform, that group of content, and then that's what everyone does. And then, you know, you've got comic book guy who insists that he's the only one who understands the truth and he does something else. But Well, and, and comic book guy aside, doesn't it really all, honestly always come down to the content? I mean, let's not – one of the urban myths that I've never really flushed out, but it, it, it sounds good to me. Uh, the reason that that the VHS war uh, was won by VHS because that's where the porn industry went. You know that you're you're absolutely you know, right. And when There's it comes no to Blu-ray versus HD DVD, the fact that Sony poured so much money into Warner Brothers and into Universal, and th those guys left HD the HD DVD camp, 
came over to Blu-ray. Well, what are those guys? They're content guys. So it sounds to me, just off the top of my head, that all of this has kind of coalesced around content. Um, we call it a format war. You know why? Because we're format guys. We, we, we plug things in and we play things. You know, but it does sound more and more like the content. So, but at the same time, go go ahead. At the same time, if you think about it, uh, I'm a device person. I think it's all around the device, and 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 I think some of you are too. We're talking about a company right now that has twenty five dollars of current assets for every person of the seven billion on this planet. (laughs) So you know, it's it's not. Buying Netflix with this contract, let alone the relationship that Apple already has with uh, Disney, and uh, I don't know what the small print is in that exclusive agreement. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a hurdle. Yeah. All right. Uh, last but not least, this came out this week. Um, and you can yell in and say, "Yeah, this is this is good or this is bad or eh, no big deal." Uh, the Crestron Studio is now available for download. And if you don't know what that is, it is a piece of software that sports Crestron's smart object technology. Basically, it's their new programming uh, software. Um, I've been in the process of downloading it now and making sure I have all the current versions and of this, that, and the other. Um, but I was talking with someone earlier, and they said that this is the end of programming as we know it. Uh, and I would agree with that. And I would say that's a good thing. Um, you know, for, for guys who make their living being, you know, capes, crest on authorized independent programmers, I don't think anything changes. But for guys like me who are, you know, a step above an end user, uh, technology managers, or people who simply don't have the budget or don't have the need to do incredibly complex systems crestron studio for crestron systems i think it's i think it's a game changer for them so that's just my two cents nobody has anything i i will certainly comment okay um you know i i'm not sure i love the fact that a manufacturer is taking uh, their resellers and dealers out of the loop and going directly to the end user. Um, and, uh, and that to me is what this move in fact is, uh, uh, is doing. Um, and that, you know, that impacts business potential in a, in a specific area. And it's not that the end user doesn't deserve to know how to program, uh, particularly in the residential market, their uh, their own equipment themselves. Um, it's the fact that a manufacturer no longer values the services that uh, we as integrators, whether commercial or residential, uh, provide in between their product and uh, and the ultimate consumer. Is that a can of worms, Tim? It's not a can of worms. It's, it's a valid. It's a valid point of view. Um, I, I would. The only thing I, w- I would say that Brock is the fact that they're, it's not like they're they're putting their stuff in in Best Buy. <laughs> you know, it, it's you, you. You still have this to go. Th- week. Oh, this week. Oh, come Best on. Buy. Let me. Let me. If I can. If I can offer a, a, a counterpoint to to what Mr. McGinnis is saying that incorporates his concerns. I think. Um, I let me preface this by saying I am not a programmer. I am not a developer. Uh, you know, the last code that I ever did was uh, basic on my Commodore 64. And it said, hello, um, world. Um, uh, pretty much, except <laughs> it did it all down the page like a thousand oh, times. Excellent. Um, so, uh, 
I talked. I, I did over talk with uh, with our development team about this, and it started several civil wars, which I'm still <laughs> you know stoking the fires of gleefully. But the general consensus that came out is that yes, this definitely opens up the the primary interface to the end user. There's 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 no question of that, but they don't necessarily it the. The end user may have access to programming objects, but they don't necessarily have access to or experience building systems. And those are those are very different things. So when you talk about workflow, for example, um, an end user may be able to put together uh, a system that has three to five steps, but they probably don't have the wherewithal or the logic base to put together one that has three or four hundred steps. And those are the types of systems that a lot of us actually build. So, does it does it give give the keys to the kingdom away? Maybe, but it doesn't necessarily uh, open the gate. If that makes sense. Well, and I, I to, to play on that real quick. I don't think it gives the king the, the keys of the kingdom away to everybody. Um, my buddy George here uh, hosts and and and, and produces a, a very fine uh, do-it-yourself podcast with with John Danforth. Absolutely, um, those are the guys that, that Brock would have to be concerned with. My father, you would not. I mean, seriously, there, there's a there's a certain group of people here that absolutely these are the guys who use X10s still use X10 to control their house. You know, these are the guys who are going to want to get into the anyway, and it may be guys who have already busted into their Crestron systems. But or busted into their XMBC system, what? which is the popular thing. Um, and here's my point with that is that they're going to do it. Regardless of whether you want them to, the really smart guys are going to do it. And making it more and more pr proprietary is going to limit your customer base. And that mass market mid-range field will just go to the stuff that they know they can get and they can make certain changes to. I've been a big advocate of saying, don't make me pay 800 bucks to change the family picture on the back of the touchscreen. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Well, and, and George, I, you know, I would... I think that's a really good point. And, and I was wondering, you know, is this an attempt by Crestron to kind of muscle in on, you know, like the Control 4 type territory? Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you see anything along those lines? I would suspect that there's something to that. Um, to what degree, I'm not sure. But I'm sure that some customer base has said, hey, you've given me on-screen menus and you've given me this special software that my client can change certain things. Like, if he gets a new Blu-ray player, he doesn't have to call me for a day's work to change it from a Panasonic to a Sony right. or whatever. Um, I, I, I would guess. I mean, I'm, I'm not in touch with that kind of decision-making over there anymore, but I would suspect that something along those lines may be in works. Yeah. I, I will relay th this uh, – play off that. I will relay this, this story to you. Um, when I was a brand-new uh, technology manager, a, a young, a very young uh, education rep came to see me. Uh, his name was Kevin Iselli, and he and I are, are still good friends to this day. But I still remember him walking into my office. Uh, and this was probably about a year on the job, and, and we were at Extron uh, campus. And, and I had heard about Crestron, and we had a couple of things, you know, to do with them. But he said, you know, uh, after seeing our campus and seeing, you know, the fact that we used, um, you know, primarily Extron gear. And he goes, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you use uh, a Crestron? I said, you guys are too expensive. You're too hard to put in. And it cost me $1,500 to change a DVD player. And it's one of those things where that's the perception. Now, after many, many years of, of, of dealing with stuff like that, I understand that it didn't quite cost $1,500 to, to, uh, to do that. Still, the perception is the fact that Crestron is expensive. 
to do minor changes to. And I think maybe this software is one of their attempts to um, kind of forestall that that um, that point of view. I don't know. That's just me. All right. <laughs> uh, you have been listening to, to AV Week. Thank you so very much. Uh, with us uh, has been Yoram's from Pinview. He is the uh, vice president and general manager. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, how can people get in touch with you, find you, uh, follow you? Do you, are you on LinkedIn, Twitter, anything like that? Like that? Easiest okay. easiest way, follow me on Twitter at uh, Yoram, Y-O-R-A-M. Very simple. Uh, my own website, YoramSolomon.com or Penview.com. You actually got at Yoram. Holy cow, that's impressive. Um, uh, also, <laughs> this has been Brock McGinnis, the sales manager for Westbury National in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you so much, sir. Hey, I uh, am pleased to no longer be a podcast version, a virgin. <laughs> You're a version, but yeah. yeah. Um, how can people find you or, or find uh, Westbury or, or, or whatever? Uh, Westbury is westbury.com. Okay. Uh, I am at Brock McGinnis. Uh, and um, I don't really want you following me. That's creepy. <laughs> You are Canadian, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> Joel Bellheimer is the Vice President Systems, and you need to talk to Joel because he's a security guy. Uh, <laughs> systems Integration Guy uh, for Pershing Technologies. How can people, uh, well, they can't find you because you're security, so. Well, it's, it's <laughs> I am not on Twitter because, as my wife says, I don't ever say anything interesting. Wow. Uh, wow. Sing. <laughs> uh, I am on LinkedIn. Uh, that's that's my preferred method. Uh, public is uh, Jay Bilheimer. Um, and uh, look forward to coming back again. Thanks, uh, having me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, And last but not least is Mr. George Tucker uh, from World Stage, but he also has a blog and does other interesting things. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. And uh, if anybody's interested, they can find me on Tucker Twos on Twitter. TuckerTuesday.typepad is my blog, and I am right for Custom Retailer and Dealerscope. I'd like to thank them for that. Wow. You got a, you got a promotion. Holy cow. All right. Um, I, I write for, for class and, and for grades and stuff. So uh, <laughs> that was a bad joke. All right. My name is Tim Albright. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to follow me, uh, it is TD, Tim David Albright, A-L-B-R-I-G-H-T. Uh, but more importantly for me and, and everybody here, uh, go by the website, if you would, please, avnation.tv. avnation.tv, you can find this show and others, George's DIY show, Live Life, um, the uh, education show, and also uh, AV Social. Also, you can find us on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and on Twitter. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. That's all the time we have for AV Week. 